You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. Welcome to episode 18 of the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Today, I'm going to share with you the practice that's kind of the biggest practice in my life right now. And today, I'm going to talk about it in the context of overcoming self-destructive behavior. This is about getting to the root cause of our self-destructive behavior, because when we understand the cause, we can make lasting changes without needing a ton of self-discipline or a ton of structure. I think especially these days in the age of social media, there is an unspoken pressure on yoga teachers to act as though we have our lives together. We don't want to be a downer, and we really want our students to respect us. The hard truth is that many people, many yoga teachers, get into yoga because we're a little messed up. (laughs) We're suffering, and yoga helps. But just because we go through a 200-hour YTT and start leading asana classes does not mean that we automatically have things figured out. Far from it. I believe that the most effective teachers are the ones who are able to be authentic about their own shortcomings and challenges while also inspiring their students to be better. This requires being brutally honest with yourself first and then ultimately being really honest about yourself with your students. It also requires committing to the long-term work of growth. Because making these shifts in our lives, it's, there's no band-aid. There's no quick fix. This is, a, this is a long-term, lifelong commitment. The best thing about the practice that I'm going to share with you today is that it's super, super simple. It is also incredibly effective. But that does not mean that it is easy. Not by a long shot. However, if you commit to this, it does get easier and it really works. Hey, I'm just popping in here to say that this advice is geared towards people who are overall in good mental health. The realm of coaching, and we could also say of yoga, is to take people from functional to thriving, which is a space that can be neglected when you're working in the medical model of disease versus no disease. So with that said, this practice and the concepts in this episode are not meant to replace working with a licensed mental health professional. The concepts do align with what I've been taught by the mental health professionals that I've worked with as a patient, but I do not have any training or experience working with people with different mental issues, (laughs) mental health issues than I might have, or who have severe mental health issues. So I can't extrapolate that what works for me will work for them. If you have any questions about the appropriateness of this practice for you, please do consult with your licensed mental health professional that you have a personal relationship with. The reason that people, all people, we, as yoga teachers included, behave in ways that are self-destructive 
and also the reason that people hurt others and now we might not engage in in behavior that actually harms others consciously but even when we're unconsciously harming others it's usually to avoid feeling an uncomfortable emotion a negative emotion such as loneliness fear grief shame or anger when we notice these feelings knocking on our door, we instinctively want to run in the other direction. And it is incredible the lengths that humans will go to in order to avoid feeling. Even when our logical brains understand that the feelings we're trying to avoid aren't actually going to hurt us, there is a very efficient part of our brain that acts as though those emotions are literally going to kill us, that they are putting our lives in danger. And that part of our brain causes us to act without conscious thought in order to avoid feeling. This instinct to avoid feeling uncomfortable emotions, I believe, is the root of self-defeating and self-destructive behavior. This is the stuff that we know better than. You know, and this applies around the board, yoga teachers, yoga students, people who've never heard of yoga. This is kind of just a a commonality among humanity. So when you hear people saying things like, I know I should exercise, but I can't get myself to do it. Or I know I shouldn't drink so much, but I don't know why I, I keep doing it anyway. Or I know I shouldn't lash out in anger, but in the moment I couldn't stop myself. So we can't help ourselves. We can't stop ourselves because the part of our brain that knows better isn't as fast as the part of our brain that is trying to protect us. So that self-protective part, it's not bad. It's not wrong. And at some points, it's definitely useful. It's kind of like an overprotective guard dog. (laughs) It's key to have in place when you really need it, but it can be a pain in the butt the rest of the time. So this part of your brain is so automatic, it's so effective that it takes a lot of practice to learn to override with your slower rational brain. The way that we can start to work with this in a healthier way is first to start recognizing that you're trying to avoid a feeling before you engage in the numbing or protective behavior. And then the second piece is to switch your internal state around the feelings that you're trying to avoid from resistance to acceptance or ideally even a sense of welcoming that behavior. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later, how to do that and why to do that. In some moments, that switch will feel impossible. However, I'm here to tell you that if I can learn to do it, not that I do it perfectly or every single time, but if I can improve, I believe anyone can. The cool thing is that when you do start you can strengthen it like a muscle. And you can begin by working with this tool when you're feeling only mildly uncomfortable and then start working into using it with emotions that feel more overwhelming if you have those. What you'll notice once you start working with it is that the effects are pretty immediate. 
the internal discord caused by our resistance to feeling is always worse than the feeling itself because the it's layered on top of this emotion that's inevitable. Like the emotion is there whether you're tamping it down or not. And then you're adding judgment and you know, stories and resistance all on top of the feeling itself. So when you get purely to the feeling, it's better. The moment that your rational brain takes over, and when even a small part of you recognizes that the feeling you're trying to avoid isn't truly dangerous, then you have already lessened its hold over you. Then when you're welcome, able to take the next step of allowing or welcoming, then the power diminishes even more. Now, I'm not saying it won't be uncomfortable, but my experience is that it is always better than the state of resistance. Now, it doesn't feel better. (laughs) Feeling these feelings does not feel better than engaging in numbing behaviors. We develop these numbing behaviors for a reason. They take away the pain of having to feel uncomfortable feelings. However, those numbing behaviors end up having side effects, and those side effects eat away at our life. So whether your numbing agent is Netflix or alcohol or food or sex or anything else, you're going to engage in that. Your engaging in that is going to be at the expense of fully living your life. and. You know, in general, depending on what your numbing behavior is and how strong its hold is over you, it it can have an effect, uh, a place in your life. So just because you use Netflix to numb doesn't mean that you have to avoid Netflix like an alcoholic avoids alcohol. You might, you know, that is, abstinence is one way of approaching it, but it doesn't have to be the only way, especially if you know that your numbing agent isn't physically addictive, right? So Netflix isn't physically addictive. We have this addiction to not feeling our feelings, but that doesn't mean that you can never watch Netflix. However, if you know that you're not fulfilling your potential, whether that's your physical potential or your potential in your career or your potential for emotional connection to your loved ones, whatever it is that you're trying to improve, then you want to make sure that you're not engaging in that numbing behavior so that you prevent yourself from growing as a person. You want to feel your feelings first. Then once you've done that work, it is okay to, you know, watch some TV. I'll give you an example of a small way that I used this tool recently. I have a tendency to avoid attending yoga classes and do my practice at home because I feel anxious about the social component of attending a yoga class. I have lived in this city for, I've lived in Asheville for over 20 years and I've been a yoga teacher here for almost 15 years, meaning that there's a social component to going to a yoga class. And I really, I don't like shallow social interactions. They drain me. So I feel some of that pressure too as a yoga teacher. Like if I'm having a rough day, I don't want to like show up at a yoga class and be all, 
you know, have my RBF, my resting bitch phase going, right? I feel like I have to kind of put on a a show for people unless I'm going to have the opportunity to get into a deeper conversation with them, which usually there isn't time for before or after yoga class. So I... I kind of like that about myself. I mean, I, I appreciate the fact that I'm not into sa- shallow social interactions, but there's some downsides to it too. And it is leading me to a feeling of anxiety that prevents me from doing things I want to do. So that's how I know that it's problematic. So it's not the, it's not the part of me that wants to be authentic that's a problem. It's the part of me that is avoiding things out of a fear of something that is intangible and, you know, like I don't even, I might show up at that class and there would be nobody there. So I don't want to let my fears dictate my behavior. So my brain is tricky and it will come up with excuses and reasons for me not to go without my even realizing why it's doing that. It'll tell me, oh, I'm running late and I don't want to stress. Oh, my childcare fell through. I probably won't be able to find someone to fill in, so I won't even try. Oh, I ate too recently. Oops. Or, oh, I haven't eaten today and I really need to eat. <laughs> so whatever it is, my brain will do that without me even realizing that what it's actually trying to do is prevent me from feeling anxiety. So a few days ago, I had a class I wanted to go to and I delayed asking for childcare help until it was too late. So that was my tricky brain. And So then I noticed, oh, you did that. I noticed that I did that. Then I was like, okay, I'm going to the next day. I'm going to a class today. And I noticed my brain trying to come up with reasons not to go. And that was my clue for me to check in emotionally. And sure enough, I was feeling anxious about it. This is a mild situation. So it was relatively easy for me to go, okay, anxiety, you're welcome. I'm making space for you. And pretty immediately, I didn't need any more excuses. I put my rational brain in charge. I had decided to go, and I respected that decision. Letting your, this emotional side of your brain, your limbic system, run your life is like letting a toddler rule. It's chaotic. Nothing gets done. You'll live off of bread and fruit. You can't make any decisions, and you can't move forward. So your forebrain has got to act like a leader in order for you to stop sabotaging yourself, stop behaving destructively. And the only way to do this is to practice noticing when you go in the other direction, when you let your limbic system rule. So even if you don't get to the point of putting your forebrain in the driver's seat, right, because the limbic system is faster, Just the act of noticing when you're in a limbic trance, that's another way of of looking at it. It's like a trance because you're operating from a story that isn't necessarily rational. So when you're noticing that as a way of short-circuiting its ability to do damage. If you practice this, you'll get better at noticing. And the earlier you notice, the easier it is to make the switch from resisting the feelings to welcoming them. And that's the key to not letting them determine your behavior. 
even if this sounds like a really good idea right now, there will be many times when you encounter the opportunity to practice where all of a sudden it will sound like a terrible idea. (laughs) It's important to have a plan to get around that. The best way to motivate yourself to be willing to feel your feelings is to have an intention, commitment, or goal that is more important to you than comfort. One of the things that I am absolutely committed to in my life is to always keep growing. In the moments where I'm really resisting the practice, and there are plenty of them, I remind myself that being willing to feel is my opportunity to grow. Then I convince myself just for a second to try it. And that second is enough relief to convince me to keep going. Because we unconsciously build the dread of our uncomfortable feelings. And in our imagination, it's always worse with that resistance built in than the pure feeling itself. Another piece of this that is super, super important to understand and believe is that the challenging feelings that we're trying to avoid are not actually avoidable. We are going to experience them for sure. If we're in a body, we're going to suffer emotionally. No matter how beautiful you are, how rich you are, how successful you are, or even, let's be real here, even how spiritually committed or advanced you are, you're still going to experience your share of painful feelings. It also doesn't matter what kind of self-soothing behaviors you engage in, such as eating, social media, TV, shopping, drugs. None of these are going to enable you to avoid feeling long-term. They're going to buffer you against the feelings in the short term, but then those feelings are going to come back at some point. At the same time, those self-destructive behaviors give your brain permission to create all kinds of self-blaming, self-shaming stories about yourself that actually make your experience, you know, they just, it makes more suffering, basically. This practice is probably, and this realization is probably the most profound thing I've learned through my yoga practice. It feels like I've been learning it for a really long time. So I don't know where I first heard it, but it started out like as a small part of my yoga practice, and now it feels like the centerpiece. So in my daily meditation, that is the first thing I do is I check in and I notice what am I feeling and what especially am I trying to avoid feeling? Just before starting to record this podcast, I noticed I was feeling kind of unusually uh, nervous. And, you know, at first I started to create a story. Well, this is just very personal. And I was like, okay, well, that, that might be true. And maybe you should stop and check in before you just jump into recording. And when I did that, it was really strange, but I started to feel this, a ton of sadness coming up. And I don't have a good story around why I was feeling that way. I just know that it was this subtext for this feeling of agitation that I was experiencing. And instead of just jumping right into recording from an agitated state, I stopped and I meditated for 10 minutes to shift myself into a more present state before 
before starting this. I also want to say that a few years ago, there's no way I would have been able to commit to this podcast because it would have been just too scary to put myself out in such a vulnerable way regularly. When you're trying to avoid feeling your feelings, then vulnerability is draining, right? Because that all that protection that you're that you're putting around yourself, it takes a lot of energy. So a willingness to be present with your feelings allows you to channel, you know, all that energy into your passion, into what you're doing. So it's totally a work in progress. I actually think I'm a little bit slow on the uptake. Like I don't have great emotional, like EQ versus IQ. I feel like everything that I've learned about emotional intelligence, that's what it is, emotional intelligence, I've had to really kind of like hammer into myself. I've, I've had to work harder than a lot of people that I see. Um, I do think a lot of yoga teachers have way more emotional intelligence naturally than I do. So I believe that most people can develop the skill of being able to recognize and feel your own feelings and especially notice when you're trying to avoid feeling feelings more quickly than I was able to. You know, this is this is 13 and a half years into teaching and probably close to 20 years into practicing that this is like really crystallizing for me. Maybe you already know all of this. Maybe you already practice it. But if it's new to you, I promise you it will change your life. I am not given to hyperbole. So when I say something like that, I'm not using it as a turn of phrase. This is the practice that I believe can heal the world. Wherever in your life you're struggling, whether it has to do with self-care, diet, setting goals, or setting boundaries, or anything else, I would love for you to try this practice and let me know what happens. When you notice that you are about to engage in some kind of self-destructive behavior, or even if you notice that you're already engaged in it, take a moment to ask yourself, what am I trying to avoid feeling right now? When you ask that question with sincerity and curiosity, my experience is that there is always something tugging in the background, tug, like waiting for you to pay attention to it. Meet that feeling, whatever it is, with compassion. And if possible, meet it with some like anticipation of, wow, this here's an opportunity to grow. And if you can't get that way, that's okay. If you can't get to that place every time or the first time, it won't always be available to you. But just compassion is enough. Just like, you're welcome here. You're part of my experience. I can handle you. That is enough. I hope this episode and this practice is helpful for you. If you think it would be helpful for somebody else, a friend, a family member, please share it. On most podcast players, there are three vertically aligned dots that you can click on to pull up a menu of different ways to share 
such as email, text, or on Spotify, you can even link to a particular episode on your Instagram story. So that's pretty cool. I want to say thank you to all the yoga teachers who are committed to the process of growth in service of something bigger, in service of this planet. I am so grateful to get to work with people who are committed to self-growth and to service. It's truly a privilege and a huge inspiration. If you would like personalized support from me, I am happy to help. You can set up a strategy session with me by going to teachingyoga.net and clicking the link that says work with me. That is the first step to getting personalized support. Please join me here again next week for an episode that is more on the practical side of teaching. It is how to use cues in your yoga class in a more conscious and skillful way with my guest, Laurel Beaversdorf. Until then, have an amazing week, yoga teachers. And please remember to make time for your personal practice.